Well, I'm excited about your week. I'm excited about the fact that you are going to be out communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to have the privilege to see God work through your life. I'm going to be praying in the next few days for you. In fact, we're going to have a concentrated time of prayer tomorrow morning early. Several of us meet for prayer, and we're going to just take all of you to the Lord and believe God for the greatest week of your life in terms of reaching people for Christ. And I thought perhaps today I might be able to prepare you a little bit for that by having you share out of the Word of God with me. And let's take our Bibles as the lights kind of come on a little bit for us. And I'd like you to look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And I want to share with you some instruction that our Lord Jesus gave to his disciples when he sent them out. In Matthew chapter 10, the first four verses, we read, And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax gatherer, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Then notice these words. These twelve Jesus sent out. Now here we're introduced to the sending process that our Lord used with his twelve disciples. The motive behind him sending them was judgment. In fact, if you go back to the end of chapter 9, seeing the multitudes, verse 36, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. If you study the gospel of Matthew, you will see that whenever there is a harvest mentioned, it is associated with judgment. Whenever there is a harvest mentioned, it is associated with judgment. God is going to come and put the sickle of judgment in and harvest the souls of men, cutting them down for judgment. It is then in the light of the inevitability of judgment that the call comes to go out with the message of salvation. Jesus then has collected around him these 12 men for the purpose of going into this field that is waiting to be harvested in the judgment of God and to bring people into his kingdom, to save them from the inevitability of judgment. Now, as we begin at verse 5, I want to share with you some of the effective principles for evangelism that Jesus gave the 12, all right? And you're going to be on the line putting your love on the line, which is the same as putting your life on the line. You're going to be doing that this week, and these are principles that I believe you can translate directly into your own practical experience this week. If we are to be effective, first of all, we're going to kind of work our way through. We must understand that we have a divine commission. Okay, that's point number one. I'll give you about seven before we're through. We are to understand that we have a divine commission. Notice verse five again. These twelve, Jesus sent out... And the original says, commanding them, or instructing them might be another way to translate it. In other words, they are under a commission. This is not optional for them. They are called of God to do this. In Matthew 28, you remember the great commission, as we call it, go ye into all the world and what? Make disciples. In Mark, it says, preach the gospel to every creature. That's a mandate. That's not an option. 
A young person said to me one time, well, I don't feel any obligation to share Christ because I don't have the gift of evangelism. To which I replied, there's no such thing as the gift of evangelism. You'll not find the gift of evangelism listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, or Ephesians 4, where the gifts are mentioned. There is no gift of evangelism. There is only a responsibility for evangelism. There's a mandate, a commission. Every one of us is called to reproduce. Now, let me think of it another way. Um, you were saved, basically, you were saved and left in this world for one purpose. And that one purpose is to spread the truth of Jesus Christ. If you were saved strictly for fellowship with God, then we could go to heaven and get on with the fellowship. As we look at our lives, if we were saved strictly for praise, we could go to heaven and get the praise going on, as we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But we're left here for one purpose. We're left here to evangelize. That is something that every one of us is obligated to do. In fact, uh, it is characteristic of life that it reproduces, and life that doesn't reproduce isn't life. And if you're not reproducing, if you're not proclaiming Christ and, and drawing others to Christ by the power and character of your life, then in a sense you're a contradiction in terms because you are a living thing that doesn't reproduce. We are mandated by God to do this. It is a divine commission. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. He says, don't commend me for doing that. Don't honor me for doing that. Don't name a city in Minnesota after me for doing that. Don't put a church up and call it St. Paul's. Don't honor me. Just pray for me. Because I'm under divine mandate. I didn't ask for this. If I don't do it, I'm in deep trouble. Every one of us, according to Acts 1.8, is called to be a witness. And Jesus, in speaking to the disciples, said it starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then goes to the whole world. This word here, command or instruct, parangelo in the Greek, is a military term. It is used in military situations of an office of an officer commanding a subordinate. It is a legal term. It is sometimes used of summoning a person to court under subpoena. It is an ethical word used to refer to instruction given to students by a teacher. It is a technique word such as referring to the rules of grammar, the rules of oratory, anything you pass on to someone to instruct them in the technique of something. And it is also a medical word sometimes used to refer to a prescription given to someone who is ill. All of those then relate to some kind of mandated and urgent instruction. And we never want to lose sight of the fact, young people, that we are called by God for the express purpose in this world of taking the message of Jesus Christ to somebody else. And we have no choice except to respond with obedience or disobedience. So you start out then understanding that you're under divine commission, just as were the twelve. And in fact, the work which they began is the work which we continue to do. The second thing I want you to notice is not only must you have a sense of a divine commission, but a sense of a central objective. A central objective. Notice verse 5 again. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, somebody might ask, well, what did he have against Gentiles? Nothing. What did he have against Samaritans? Nothing. The gospel was certainly for the Gentiles. You can go all the way back into Isaiah and you will find in Isaiah that there is the promise that when the Messiah comes, his message will go to the ends of the earth, touching all nations. In Mark 16:15, as I mentioned earlier, we are to preach the gospel to every creature. He has nothing against Samaritans. Did you know that Jesus first revealed his Messiahship to a Samaritan woman as recorded in John 4? 
But the point is, in their case, it was strategic for them to go to the people in the culture that they most understood. It was strategic for the Lord's purposes that he should come as the Messiah to Israel, first offering to Israel the message of salvation so that they then could not only receive it, but be the source of taking it to the rest of the world. The only point I want to make, and I don't want to take time getting into all of the dispensational ramifications of this, is to say that he told them you have to have a very central objective, a very clear focus. My grandfather used to say when I was young, just do one thing right in your whole life and you'll be way ahead of most people. Just have one central focus. In fact, when I look at my own ministry, people say to me, why is it that you do most of your teaching uh, in the New Testament? Why is it that you go book by book and you do all expository preaching? Somewhere along my life, I got tangled up in Colossians chapter 1 and realized that I was called to be a minister of the New Covenant. And as I understand it, the New Covenant is revealed in the New Testament. And I decided that if I was going to do one thing with my life, it would be to spend the years God gives me to try to teach the whole New Testament. I had found that in Acts 20, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I've not failed to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And so I wanted to set my life in a track that if the Lord should tarry and I should live, someday I would end up having taught the whole counsel of God as revealed in the new covenant. And that's a very clear objective for me. And I never lose sight of that. You know, somebody said would-be messiahs are always megalomaniacs. I mean, some people want to win the whole world. There are always people who have these huge dreams, but very often never focus in on anything. And somebody said one time, how do you eat an elephant? You heard that? One bite at a time. And I saw a poster once that said, how do you win a world? The bottom said, one at a time. There needs to be a clear focus. Do you know Jesus had a very clear focus? He himself came, he said, not to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not only did he come only to the Jews, but not even all the Jews. He said, among the Jews, I came not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. Furthermore, he said, not only did I come only to the Jews and only to the sinners among the Jews, but in so ministering, he said, I have come only to do that which the Father shows me to do. He had an economy of effort that was astounding. He wasn't trying to be everything there was possibly to be. He had a very clear objective, a very central focus. And and so what our Lord is saying is, look, you are just getting started in this process of evangelism. The twelve are going out for the very first time. So he says, don't get embroiled with this new message. Don't get embroiled in all of the problems of trying to reach the sophisticated cultures you don't know that much about. You focus on the area you understand. You go to the Jews, and among the Jews, the lost in the house of Israel. And he directed them to go to a culture that they understood. Now, you're going to have that opportunity this week to go to people that are in a culture you understand. And that's where you want to learn. That's where you want to start. And that's a very clear, precise objective. The third thing you need is not only a central objective, but a very definite message. Notice what he says to them. Verse 7. And as you go... Preach or proclaim, and this is what you say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a very simple message. Now, what does that mean? Now, listen very carefully. This is vital. The kingdom of heaven, what does that imply? Well, it implies that there is a domain in which God rules. Fair enough? The word kingdom tells us that. You're calling people, he says, to come under the rule of God. 
And that has never changed. That is still the gospel message. We're still calling people to come under the authority of God, to come under the authority of his word, to come under the authority of his son. That's what we are proclaiming. And I think we need to have that crystal clear. Let me just speak to that for a moment. Sometimes you hear people uh, present the gospel and they say, would you like to receive Jesus Christ? That's fair enough. I don't want to argue with that. Sometimes they'll say, would you like to make a decision for Christ? Would you like to believe in Christ? And maybe that's really a, a, an abbreviated form of the presentation that might confuse somebody. Because we're not asking someone simply to believe in Christ. The devils believe in what? And tremble. We're not asking someone simply to decide they don't want to go to hell. They'd rather go to heaven. Anybody with his brain intact is going to affirm that. We're not asking someone simply to accept in a moment of time that Jesus will forgive their sin and make their life all better. What we're calling people into is a kingdom over which God rules through Christ, right? And that's, that's a different message. What we ought to say is what Jesus said, follow me. And what you want to say to people, and this is the clear message... Is you want to call people to follow Jesus Christ. That's what you're asking. You're not asking them to decide they don't want to go to hell. A lot of folks will decide that on the spot. You're not asking them to decide they believe in Christ. You're saying, are you willing to follow Jesus Christ into his kingdom where God rules through his son? That's the message. That's the message of the kingdom. The kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one. The word heaven tells us that. It is a kingdom that is in another sphere. So what I'm doing is saying this. I am stepping out from the dominion of this earthly kingdom in which I rule into the dominion of that heavenly kingdom in which God rules. Now you're really putting it on the line, aren't you? That's, that's I believe, the proper way to call people to Christ. Jesus said, tell them about the kingdom of heaven. A clear message. And what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, in Romans 14, 17, it says it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You're calling them into righteousness. You're calling them into peace with God. And you're calling them to the resultant joy of the Spirit of God. Romans 14, 17. Let me give you a fourth idea that I see in this text. Not only is it necessary to realize you have a divine commission and a central objective, and that is to go to the people that you understand in your culture at the beginning until you learn carefully how to do that, and then you can branch out. You thirdly must have a clear message, that is to call people to follow Jesus Christ into the kingdom of God where God rules and abandon the kingdom of this earth where Satan rules and they think they rule. But fourthly, you must have confirming credentials. This is a marvelous point. Look at verse 8. Heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Stop there. You say, well, that lets us out. What in the world is this? Well, this is credentials, folks. You know how important credentials are? Uh, you go to a doctor. <clears throat> you go in the office. And uh, he diagnoses you and he says, look, you've got a real problem, man. You've got heart failure. You need quadruple bypass. And I'd be most happy to do it. One thing you're going to want to know, what are this guy's credentials? You go over to the wall and you see this guy has graduated from the Union 76 School of Auto Mechanics. You're out of there. He's got to have the right credentials before he's cutting your chest open. And when you, that's why doctors hang all that junk on the wall. 
All that Latin stuff that you don't know what it is, but it looks good. They, they have to have credentials before they cut you open. And it's the same thing when you get into the spiritual dimension. I don't listen to everybody who comes along and tells me that this is the truth of God. I want some credentials. And in that day, there was no New Testament. So how is anybody going to be compelled to believe these preachers? I mean, after all, Peter, Andrew, James, John, not exactly the erudite of Israel. Common guys who work with their hands. Fishermen. None of them were anything to be esteemed. Uh, they were not educated in Jerusalem. They were not a part of the part of the of the elite. They were not a part of the religious establishment. They didn't have any of those kinds of pedigrees. So how was it that the people would believe what they said? Well, Jesus said, "I'm going to give you credentials: heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons." You go around doing that, and people are going to say, "These guys aren't from man. They must be from God." Credentials. Now ask yourself this question, right? You're going to go out and you're going to present Christ to somebody. What reason do people have to believe that you really speak for God? What reason? Why should they believe you? Why would anybody believe the twelve? Well, because of these supernatural wonders that they did. Now, I don't believe we can do those. I believe, as 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, those were the signs of an apostle and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And I think those have passed away. But let me dig a little bit behind those for a minute, okay? Look at this again. Verse 8. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Let's take just those two. Why do you think God gave them the power to do that? Did you ever think about that? I mean, imagine if he said, all right, you guys, now you go out and you preach this message of the kingdom. And I want everybody to believe you, so I'm going to give you the ability to fly. Got that? So you say, listen, folks, I'm from God. And to prove it, you just flap your arms and just take off. And let's assume you fly around a little bit and you come down to a perfect landing. Or let me also give you the ability to create. And you can just stand there and say, um, I think I'd like to have a tree. Tree. It's tree. Or um, I think I'd like to have a, a nice, beautiful home built here. Home. Pretty impressive, right? If they could do that. Why in the world did God give them this particular power? To heal the sick and cleanse the lepers. I'll tell you why. Because it demonstrated that God was a God of compassion on people in need. You grab that? He could have given them the ability to do a lot of different things. But the fact that he gave them the power to heal the sick and cleanse the lepers, those were demonstrations that God has a heart of compassion. And you remember when the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus in Matthew's gospel and they said, John wants to know if you're really the Messiah, if you're really the one sent from God. And Jesus said, go back and tell him that the sick are being healed and the deaf are hearing and the blind are seeing and the dumb are speaking. And he'll know that I must be from God because God is a God of what? Compassion. Now, beloved, you can't go out and heal the sick and cleanse the lepers, but you can go out and show what? Compassion, the heart of God. And I believe the credibility of our Christian testimony is directly related to the compassion we demonstrate, which is characteristic of Christ and characteristic of God the Father. When Jesus came into the world, Jesus, for all intents and purposes during the three years of his ministry, banished disease from Palestine completely. 
What did that say? It wasn't that that was the only way God could show himself through Christ. He could have done a million kinds of miracles. But he did that to show the compassion of his heart. What are our credentials? First of all, I believe we must have a mercy and a compassion that is like that of Christ. And we reach out to the people who are needy with a humble, compassionate, tender, caring heart. That's a credential that links us with the heart of God. Second credential. Notice verse 8 again. Raise the dead, cast out demons. Now, we can't raise the dead, we can't cast out demons. But that has to do with power. A second credential in the life of a believer is power. And I believe that we can demonstrate the power of God in our lives. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. The power to invade the kingdom of darkness with the light of Christ. The power, as it were, to see the spiritually dead raised. I think you can live a powerful life if you walk in the Spirit. People can look at your life and say, there's a powerful life. Look at the influence of that life for good. Look at the influence of that life for God. Look what God has done through that individual. That's a credential. Hard to argue with a powerful life. Hard to argue that a person who is a catalyst for changing many lives is not a person who has the power of God. We don't need to raise the dead. We don't need to cast out the demons as Christ and the apostles could do to prove we have the power of God. We just need to live a life that is filled with the Spirit through which the power of God flows. Power to conquer sin. Power to be an effective servant of Christ. Power and boldness to speak the truth of God. Power to be an influence in our world and our community for the things of Christ. And there's a third credential. Look at the end of the verse. Freely you received what? freely give. Let me tell you the third credential. The third credential is unselfishness. Freely you receive, freely you give. Whatever you have, you receive from whom? The Lord. Was your salvation a free gift? Was your spiritual gift a free gift? Is your opportunity for service a free gift? Do you do anything to earn any of that? Of course not. And you received it all freely, then you give it all freely. And I'm telling you, that is a credential that Christianity must have. What right now is going on across this America, uh, this, this nation of America, in the PTL scandal, is reflective, in my judgment, of the absence of all of these credentials. I see people... On the PTL, the, the bakers and other people like that, who demonstrate not compassion for people in need, but manipulation of people who have little in order that they might gain much. Not power over sin, but literally the dominion of sin in their life. And not unselfishness, but gross, consuming selfishness. Is it any wonder there's a question about the integrity of Christianity? Our credentials are compassion, power, and unselfishness. People say to me sometimes, we want you to come and speak, what do you charge? And in all the years of my ministry, I've never answered that question any other than to say, I don't charge anything. How can I, how can I charge you for what God has given me freely? When Christianity goes out in compassion, in power, and utter unselfishness, in self-sacrificing love that gives the life away, then it has the credentials to make it believable. Unselfishness, power, 
compassion. Well, much more to say, but let's go to a fifth thought. If we're going to be effective in evangelism and missions, we also have to have a confident faith. A confident faith. I wanted to say one other thing about that last point, just as a footnote. Um, Do you know how much money people will pay for healing? Any amount. Do you realize that anybody who claims they can heal somebody could can be an instant millionaire? Follow this thought. Do you know how much money the apostles could have made because not only did they claim to heal people, but what? They could do it. They could have been millionaires instantaneously. People will pay anything for that. So the Lord said to him, don't charge anything. Anything at all. Total unselfishness. The confident faith comes in verse 9. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or garments or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. You know what that says? Go out there and do your ministry and don't try to accumulate your fortune so that you can support yourself. Go out there and do your ministry and let the people who are a part of that, who are blessed by that, meet your needs. You ever read the story of C.T. Studd? He was one of the greatest cricket players in the history of England, great athlete. He inherited a, a fortune, a massive fortune. He felt the call of God to the mission field. He wanted to live by faith, so he gave it all away. And he and his wife went to the mission field with absolutely nothing. Because he wanted to be in a position where he lived by faith. Now let me tell you, God isn't poor. And in living by faith, he may make you rich. But you certainly want to live in the attitude that says, I'm not going to make sure I'm treated in the manner I'm accustomed to. You're going to say, I want to go out believing God to supply everything I need. You don't have to feather your own bed before you move out. You go in faith and you trust God to supply. And my God, says Scripture, shall supply what? Philippians 4, all your needs according to his riches by Christ Jesus. Confident faith. Listen, let me kind of stretch that a little bit. When you go out... To evangelize this week, will you go not only in faith for your sustenance that God will provide? You have that pretty well in hand. You're here. You've got that kind of security. But will you go in faith that God is going to take you where he wants you to be, place you with the people he wants you to speak to, give you the opportunities to influence those that he wants you to influence, and go in the confidence of your heart that is unhurried and unperturbed and without anxiety, believing that God brings you there and God creates the situation for you to speak the truth of Christ. And then walk away with a thankful heart that you took the advantage of the opportunity God gave and leave the results to Him. A sixth thought. Effective evangelism also involves contentment. Contentment. I love this. Verse 11. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy, that is, whose home you would want to be in. You don't want to stay in some homes. Uh, It might not be a good place to stay. I remember I was going to Wichita, Kansas one time to hold a uh, series of meetings. And uh, the pastor, not the pastor, but one of the people in the church had been assigned by the pastor to take care of my lodging. And he took me to a motel on the main drag in Wichita. And it was kind of a little bit of a rundown place, but um, that was all right. Uh, I I went in there and I got a room and it was a terrible room. So I asked if I could have a different room and they gave me another room. And it was a small bit less terrible than the first one. 
But anyway, I figured, well, the Lord must have some reason. I'll just stay here. That night, I went down to the coffee shop to eat because the meetings didn't start the next day. And I noticed a whole lot of uh, half-dressed ladies with heavy makeup sitting around the coffee shop. And then about 7 o'clock, trucks started rolling in. I mean, big trucks from everywhere. And these big truck drivers came in and started pairing off. And, and I realized I was in a brothel. And, I, you know, I'm the, the guest uh, Bible teacher for the week. So I, I called up somebody and said, hey, hey, i got to get out of this place. This is unworthy. This is unworthy of the servant of God. Get me out of here. And I was using this verse. <laughs> But if you find a place that's worthy, I like this. If you go into a village, you find a place that's worthy, then stay there until you leave. I love that. You know what's happened to me? I've gone into a town to spend a week, and some dear couple says, come to our house. And you go to their house, they've got eight kids under three. You know, screaming, running. And the husband is a, is a frustrated seminary student who wants to ask you all the Bible questions he's accumulated for the entire years of his life. And you got kids jumping in and out of your lap, and you're sleeping with his mother-in-law because sharing a, you're sharing a, a bedroom, you know. And it's horrendous. And about the third day, somebody in the church comes in, and he says, "You know, uh, how are you getting along uh, staying over at the? Oh, it's, it's fine, fine." Uh, listen, he says, uh, "You know, we own the ranch up on the hill. We've got eight swimming pools, and uh, and we've got uh, we've got a suite in the back. And boy, it would sure be. Now, why don't you just come up there? Oh." Does that sound good, you know? But what does it say? Hey, if you do that, what are you going to do? You're going to leave the impression that you won't settle for anything that doesn't just work out the way you want it for your own comfort. He says, when you go into a worthy place, you stay there until you leave. It's a good principle, isn't it? Now, some of you in these days are going to wind up in a place and you're going to wonder. I, I remember sleeping in a home in Mexico City with a little Mexican family. As I recall, there was no bathroom there. And I was on a missions trip down there. I got into that house all by myself. We had a wonderful time. I couldn't sleep all night because I don't sleep well on orange crates. And I, there was no facility at all. And these people were dear, precious people. And I had a broken leg and a severed deltoid ligament in my ankle and was waiting to get a flight out of there so I could get back here and get surgery. I had broken my leg and ripped my ankle up sliding into second base in a baseball game. And uh, those dear people were trying to take care of me. And all they had were a few aspirins and a little bit of water and coming out of a jug. And, I mean, that's the way it was. Now, what kind of testimony for Christ would it have been if I demanded they take me to some fancy hotel? It's a simple principle, but it says volumes about your life and your commitment and your preoccupation. So have that contentment that just says, wherever the Lord puts me, I'll stay till I leave. Number seven, and I think I just came up with an eighth, so uh, you'll indulge me for one more after that. Number seven, this is such a good principle, too, when you carry the gospel. He says... Um, in verse uh, 12, as you enter the house, give it your greeting. In other words, uh, confirm the blessing of God on the place. That's, that's just the idea. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. If it's not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. In other words, get out of there. If it's a good, worthy place, bless those folks. Encourage them with God's blessing for their great hospitality. And then he says, you're really concentrating on the receptive people. When you get an open heart and you get an open house, you bless the people. Now, what does that mean? Listen, pour out your blessings on people worthy to receive them. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7. Don't cast your pearls before what? Swine. 
I've learned something in my ministry, young people, that's stood in good stead all through the years. Concentrate on the receptive heart. Don't spend your time wrangling with those that are blockheads that are resisting the, the work of God. Now, you may not know that until you're a little bit into the conversation. In a gracious way, commit their soul to God and say, I'll pray for you, my dear friend, but I'm on my way. You can waste your time when you find a place that is worthy to hear, when you find someone who is eager to listen, then pour your heart out to them. Feed the hungry soul. Hmm? Feed the hungry soul. And if the house isn't worthy, then don't greet it. The negative side, and that's the eighth point, is to reject the contemptuous. Verse 14, whoever doesn't receive you nor heed your words as you go out of the house or the city, shake off the dust of your feet. And truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What does that mean? You know what the Jews used to do? They were so, so nationalistic about their own land that when a Jew traveled outside Israel, outside Palestine, he went into Gentile territory. Whenever he came back in, he shook all the dirt off him because he didn't want any Gentile dirt carried back into, into Israel. Right? That's how, that's how really racist they had become. So they would shake the dirt off their garments so they wouldn't bring Gentile dirt back in. It was a sign of disdain. The Apostle Paul did that. When he went to preach Christ and people wouldn't listen, he would shake the dust. It became almost a euphemism. He would shake the dust, as it were, saying, I, I reject you. I turn away from you if you're not willing to hear. And I think that's part of what we need to understand as well. If you find someone who's not worthy, someone who only wants to mock the gospel, someone who only wants to speak against Christ, someone who only wants to attack and tear down and cut down, listen, shake the dust off your feet and get out of there, and it'll be more tolerable for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that person in the day of judgment, because that person heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, which hadn't arrived when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. So there's a greater judgment on that person. And you can say that if you need to, if the person is worthy of such a statement. You can say, I turn you over to the judgment of God for your rejection of Christ. There have been occasions when I did that. I remember doing that to some Mormon bishops one time. I felt I was prompted by the Spirit of God as they tried to capture an unstable soul from our congregation. And I told them that they were set on a course that would result in the damnation of God and eternal hell. Owing, you know, their eyes. No one had told them that, I guess, but that was the right thing to tell them. And I can only trust that God used that to prick their hearts and cause them to consider that maybe they were in error. Principles, okay? Let me give them to you really quick in review. You ready? The first thing you want to affirm is that God has called you with a divine commission. You're out there on a mandate. The second thing, you have a central objective. That is, you focus clearly on taking the simple gospel of Jesus Christ to the people that are before you and take it one at a time, one opportunity at a time. You have a clear message. You are calling people to come under the kingship of God and the rule of Jesus Christ out of the dominion of this world where Satan rules and they think they rule into the dominion where God rules in Christ to follow Jesus. Also, you come with confirming credentials, and your credentials are a heart of compassion and mercy, a life of power, and an attitude of what? Unselfishness. You go with confident faith, believing that God will supply all your needs, and set every table before you. You have a heart of contentment. Wherever you go, you're content to be there. You don't seek to be in a better place or with better people, but you're content to be wherever there are worthy folks and you'll stay till you leave. And you concentrate on those that are receptive. 
And you reject those that have contempt for the gospel of Christ. Well, I hope that gives you a little bit of a practical help as to what you face this week. But let me say this. These are not principles for this week. You understand that. These are principles for what? For life. If I've introduced a little of it into your heart, then you're obligated to dig back into that chapter and get a lot more as the days go on. Let's pray together.